Let's go to John 2. Let's talk about it for a little bit. Um, I, I was thinking, I've been in the spirit of this lesson all week. You know, it's kind of, it, you know, I love it when I can read early in the week and kind of be working on it all week and, and think about it and um, um, this and, uh, and kind of put some, it, it may not come out like I've been thinking about it all week, but I have, you know. By the way, I, I told you, I'd tell you where I was. You guys remember Joey and Lexi who used to sit right back here when they were in in school, in school, and then right after that, while Joey was still in school, I I was with them last weekend in, in a little place called Monterey, Louisiana, and uh, we had a great time on Sunday morning and Sunday evening. And then we booked back this way, and and uh, so it was kind of a long weekend. Drove uh, about twelve hundred miles, I think, something like that, over the weekend. But I got to hold their baby, which that was good, huh? She's now two and a ball of fire, and uh, so anyway, that so you said I was babysitting, yeah, kinda. Okay, she sat with us in church. Does that count? All right. Now, I've been thinking all week about this wedding, uh, the last of the fourth and the last of these weddings that we're going to talk about. I've done in my lifetime and my ministry lifetime over thirty-eight years or so. I have officiated at dozens, maybe hundreds. I, I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't. I don't keep track of all that stuff. I probably should. Um, um, I've got files on all that stuff. I guess we could count them all up. But, um, but of weddings, and it's interesting to me how elaborate some are and how simple others are. Leah, we did a pretty simple one, didn't we? And it took. It, it just worked just fine, didn't it? How long ago was that? 14 years ago. That's, that's amazing. Don, we did a really simple one, didn't we? Yeah, Don, Don's, he's reading ahead. We did a pretty simple one. Yeah, did a pretty simple one. I'm glad Glory's not here to hear that. Yeah, all right. And, but, but you know what? There is absolutely no correlation. I'm going I'm 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 to um, encourage some of you fathers of the bride. There is Absolutely, at least in my experience, no correlation between the amount of money spent and how likely that what marriage is to succeed. There is no direct correlation at all. Okay? So if you've still got some at home who are yet to walk down the aisle, maybe that will encourage you to maintain the budget. Okay? Uh, because I've just seen, I've been parts of those that, were, that, that pulled out all the stops and didn't last 30 minutes. You know, and then I've been part of others, like a couple that we reference in here that were very simple and very wonderful and holy. And they last and last and last. The f most, my most favorite wedding that I ever attended, now 38 years ago, <laughs> there were in the sanctuary at least some plastic flowers. And it's lasted 38 years. Okay? All right. All right. Silk flowers, probably. Rhonda would shoot me for telling you that, but there were probably some silk flowers. All right. Now, we're going we're gonna to deal with this little wedding today in John 2. I, I will say it now and I'll say it again. Um, 
This is in some ways the baptism of Jesus was Jesus coming out party. By the way, we celebrate that. Some traditions celebrate the baptism of Jesus as epiphany. You remember Terry preached about that a couple weeks ago. Um, some, some traditions celebrate that as the coming. He, he preached on it as the coming of the wise men, if you remember. Some other traditions pre, uh, kind of celebrate that day as Jesus' baptism. Um, I'm not sure it matters either way. But some, some will say that was Jesus' coming out party. Others will say John 2 was his coming out party, kind of although it was somebody else's party. But it does mark the very first miracle that Jesus performed. And it prompts me to ask the question, are there prayers that you can pray that are just too small for God? Uh, you know, I think your faith, uh, the level of your faith kind of has a bearing on how you would answer that question, I, I, I think. Um, he will say in some places, he was found faithful in little, we have also found faithful in much, right? And, and I don't think there are any details in my life that he's not concerned about. And I used an intentional double negative there. Okay, I caught myself in the middle of the sentence, Larry. For instance, but, but by the way, uh, you know, don't plan to pray for the Broncos today. I mean, you know, I'm for them, I'm for them, but I'm not praying for them, okay? I mean, I'm probably not going to relegate that. All that being said, all right? Um, I just want... Peyton to be okay, you know, don't want him to get hurt again. But you kind of get my point here? Now, let me give you a little bit of background. This was Jesus' first miracle. I get to thinking about how, how wonderful this is. The Old Testament is loaded with wedding language. We've looked at some of it in this series. Some of it's literal, some of it's figurative, like, uh, but like we were kind of going back and forth on whether or not uh, Song of Solomon was literal or figurative. Some is positive, some is negative. But a wedding is always a big deal in the world of the Bible. Jesus' teachings drew a lot. Paul's teachings drew a lot from the imagery of wedding celebrations. One of my favorite parables is the parable of the wedding feast in, in, uh, in uh, Matthew 22, uh, where um, Jesus talks about all the big shots being invited who didn't show up, you know. And uh, so, anyway, um, now, there are some variations in the way a wedding was celebrated in Jesus' day, but generally it included a large festive meal where the guests were treated to what they didn't normally get to do on the... Uh, uh, on their normal mundane life, uh, they were treated to lots of food and lots of drink, and uh, that wasn't what they normally got to do. Normally, they were they were pretty uh, Spartan in the way they had to eat because they were so impoverished. But what I kind of want to deal with here, uh, the cost of hosting that kind of an event was high, and the bridegroom might even hire Janie Stewart to come coordinate, Okay. And if he had any sense about him, he would certainly do that. All right? And, and so that person would be hired to, be, be, kind of, uh, to do that. No bridegroom would have wanted to be seen as a miserly for scrimping on this very public event, the biggest event in his lifetime. And it's interesting that the bridegroom paid for it, not the, uh, what, um, um, 
one writer would call the FOTB, the father of the bride, okay? Uh, but I find it interesting that Jesus performs his first miracle on a Wednesday. That's interesting. How do I know that? Wednesday was the day of the week that maidens, virgin women, were married. Isn't that interesting? It wasn't on the Sabbath. It wasn't even on our holy day, Sunday. It was on a Wednesday in a very small hamlet in Galilee, not in Jerusalem, not in Rome, but in a very small place, in a very out-of-the-way place, in a place where lots of friends were gathered to celebrate something wonderful and something went kind of sideways and he fixed it in a very wonderful and miraculous way. Let's, let's kind of deal with it just a little bit. Uh, Bob, would you mind to read the first two verses of John 2? Okay, we're going to stop right there for a second. Now, I need to hand out a couple of things for us to read. Uh, would somebody read... 323, Luke 323, who'd get that? Thank you, Eileen. Uh, Luke 323. Uh, I also want us to go to uh, just back a page to John 143. Who would do that? Thank you, Steve. Okay. And um, all right. Uh, now, let's talk about for a minute who was there and who was not there. Who does it tell us in the text was at the wedding? First, who was the first guest that's mentioned? Mary, Jesus' mom. Okay, Jesus' mother was there. She was invited, as we find out in verse 2, was Jesus. We can make kind of a, um, a stretch here that uh, Jesus, um, um, that Jesus was invited, if Jesus was invited, Mary was invited, this was probably, and I'm, I'm going to make some Sanctified stretches here today, okay? Based on reading and thought. But uh, this might have been a family wedding. And I'll talk about that in just a second, okay? In other words, that's why, why Mary was so vitally involved in this. I'm not saying this was a marriage of one of Jesus' brothers. I'm just saying this was, uh, Jesus and Mary definitely were on the inside of this in some way. And I'm, I'm going to make a stretch to it, who, who it might have been. Uh, uh, interestingly, um, and by the way, in that first blank, you can put this is probably a family event, okay? Um, I think. Now, who's not mentioned that you would think would be mentioned if Jesus and Mary are mentioned? Joseph. Would you expect that he would have? I think so. What some commentators will extrapolate from this is if Joseph is not mentioned, and he was not there, it wasn't probably just because he's like my friend Ellie who doesn't like to go to weddings. <laughs> Am I calling it right, man? Okay. I can just see it on your face. Um, you know, lots of us guys don't necessarily care to go to the, all the weddings that you girls like to go to. Does that, that make sense? This was probably not necessarily the case in this example. Probably Joseph wasn't there because tradition would tell us probably Joseph is gone by then. He has died by then. In fact, one of the reasons Jesus remained in the home for the last 18 years or so was because he was the eldest. How do we know that? 
Remember, Mary was a virgin, yeah. Uh, he was the eldest of, of other children, and he takes care of his mother and takes care of the home until about 30 years old. Probably one of the reasons for that is probably dad was gone by then. We don't know when, and nobody knows for sure, but that's probably, this is probably one of those indications that he was long since, or at least for a while, off the scene. Now, he also, Jesus also brings with him um, uh, some friends. We'll talk about that in a second. Now, who's got Luke 3.23? Is that you, Eileen? Okay, so there's kind of the family connection, but Joseph's not mentioned here. Okay, Steve, I think you were going to get for us, um, actually start at, well, start at 43 on, in John 1, and I may have you go a little further. Keep reading a little bit and I'll stop you, okay? Okay, now, Jesus has begun to call his first disciples, all right? Um, and I, I've done a little work this week, and it, the trail's a little cold even in my mind today about who, was, who would have been there. Uh, some commentators believe half of the disciples were following him at this time, um, and so it might have been six of them that came with him. I can find kind of maybe five in the text that were there, Andrew, his brother Peter, are kind of among the first in this uh, John 1 narrative at least, and, um, um, and then um, um, found his own brother Simon, verse 41, brought him to Jesus, uh, then he goes, he finds Philip, Jesus said to Philip, so then now there's three, Philip um, 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 found Nathaniel and said to him, uh, so he, he calls Nathaniel. Um, it's just kind of interesting. So there's at least four of them. I can sometimes find five because there's, there's another little passage in here somewhere where it's talking about um, um, the other follower of John. A lot of these guys were already followers of John the Baptist when they began to follow Jesus. Remember John had said, he must increase and I must decrease. Anyway, there's five or six of them, at least four of them with him. Now, what happens... If Jesus is invited to the feast and he brings five or six friends, how, how does that work at your house? Okay, uh, you know, whoop, we're going to put some water in the soup. Yeah. 
uh, right? That's kind of at least part of the scenario that takes place. Um, um, now, I, I find this really interesting, and we're, we're going to kind of unpack it a little bit on, on who was there and who was not there. So we know, at least in the narrative, we know that, that um, Andrew and Peter were there. We know that Nathaniel was there. We know that Philip was there. We know that Jesus was there. We're not sure who else, but there could have been at least one or two, two others. Uh, there are some who believe James and John were there. I'm not so sure. It doesn't really mention them by name. It will talk about others who followed uh, two others who followed John being a part of that, which that would certainly fit them. Uh, tradition tells us one thing. I'm not so sure, but let's go on. Bob, can I have you go back and read three, and let's go down through um, six. Okay, okay, we're going to stop right there for a second. Now, I find it intriguing here. One of the things that makes me think, at least, and some commentators think that this must have been a family wedding of some kind, is that Mary seems to be overly concerned about the success of this deal. All right? Mary seems to have, and kind of what I wrote in, in the notes here, Mary seems to have her finger on the pulse of the event. Um, uh, and, and she's kind of managing here, or bringing, uh, bringing to the forefront, a, uh, what I would call a crucial need. Okay, now. Um, okay, here's where I want to suggest something, okay? Could it be, and I've heard more than one say this, I've never been able to research it thoroughly to know, could it be that there were four disciples there with Jesus, could it be, and maybe a fifth, could it be that the guy who's writing the book was there? He sure writes it with great detail. Okay, that's John the Divine, John the Beloved, right? Could it be that the reason Mary is so concerned about the success of this party, could it be is be, that it's because it is her sister's son that's getting married, the bridegroom in the story, Salome, guess who that would be? John. Okay? Okay, don't, don't brand me as a heretic yet. Just think about it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're going to deal with it as if this is John's wedding. I, I find that really romantic to think about, to tell you the truth. And I find it, um, it, in other words, what could be happening here is it is Jesus who is not just saving some unnamed bridegroom's bacon. It's Jesus who's saving John's bacon, although John wouldn't need bacon because he's a Jew. Okay? <laughs> All right? Got that? So it could be, and that would be... Now, I use the word... I use the word... Um, um, crucial here, and I want to talk that, about that a little bit. The wine supply had been exhausted. There's no more. It's not... We're running out. It's we have run out. The likely reason for having run out is that there's more guests than are expected. Jesus is part of that deal. Um, um, 
the celebration has been budgeted too tightly and there's no extra just-in-case wine, okay? Uh, they called it kind of too close. And so uh, they're in a little bit of a bind here. This lack of hospitality, if this feast continues and the wine is not there, this lack of hospitality in, a, in an environment or in a culture where hospitality was a really big deal would not be forgotten. It would be a public embarrassment. It would be a lifetime embarrassment. Cana is not in the main thoroughfare of anything. Even if more wine is available from a larger town a few miles away, it would take several hours to get it and get it back. By the time it arrives, the banquet would have fizzled. The guests are muttering. They're going home. So this is a crucial moment. Can I tell you something? We would not know the word crucial if you didn't know Jesus. Do you know, look up the derivative of the word crucial. It has to do with the cross. The crux of the matter is the cross. The critical matter is the cross. All those words have some relation to what happened on the cross. Literally, grammatically. The word crucial means it's a crossroads experience. And that's what they're in. If this is John, he is in real trouble here. He's met a new friend. Could be his cousin. We don't know. And he's dealing some with that particular crucial issue. Now, what crucial moment are you in? Maybe things are smooth for you right now. I hope. Have you ever faced a crucial moment? Do you suppose there might be another one yet to come? Does Jesus care, Jesus care about your crucial moment? You wouldn't know the word crucial if he hadn't gone to the cross for you. You wouldn't even know the word. It would have never entered into our language. That sounds like he might be interested. How about, how about you? Now, so, Mary says to him, just matter-of-factly, uh, son, they have no more wine. And his answer to her in verse 4 Seems rather rude, does it to you? I, I, I've always felt that. Woman? Okay, woman? Now, some commentators will soften that word a lot and say the word that he was using is lady. Okay. Lady. Um, what I, I know, what I've got to know, because uh, my Savior never sinned, is that he didn't react in an un... Um, the word un, un, um, unkind way uh, because he was the, the picture of kindness he certainly wouldn't have disrespected his mother that was contrary to the Ten Commandments for one thing okay so we've got to look at the at the spirit of this a little bit would somebody go to seven chapter seven and read verse six through eight
he seems really interested. You remember, this is early. There's only maybe six of the disciples yet called. And he says in eight, uh, in, in seven and again in eight, okay, now careful here because my time has not yet come. What's he trying to say here? What's he saying to his mother? My time has not yet come. I'm sorry? You take care of it. Well, he may be saying that, although he does take care of it, Joanne. Uh, what I think he's saying is, you know, there, there is a sequence of events that's going to that's gonna begin when people start f- figuring out who I am. You know it. These six guys are kind of wondering. But it's, to do something in public forces an issue that is just not yet time. That's kind of what he's saying here. Now, I find it really, really interesting that there's only two times that I can find when he uses this word, lady, woman, out of his mouth, and they're both to Mary, his mother. One is here when he says, woman, what does this have to do with us? My time has not yet come. He says it one other time, and John's in that scene too. In 1926, when he looks at John and he looks back at his mother and says, Woman, behold your son. I find that really intriguing. Boy, talk about a crucial moment from the cross. Now, so he's, um, he's going to deal with it. But I find it intriguing here that Mary gives, Mary just patently turns to the servants around them in this scene when Jesus says, Mom, we've got to be careful here. My time has not yet come. And Mary uh, kind of says, just do whatever he tells you to do. And she walks off, <laughs> assuming that he's going to take care of whatever it is. Joanne, okay? I, I love this scene. It's, it's good mom and son stuff right here. And she walks away, goes back to the party, now, but I got to say here that Mary's response to that whole thing is really, really good advice to you and me. Can, can I suggest something to you? If every wedding, if every marriage, if every home would begin with this little simple piece of Mary's advice every day, more of them would last. Just do whatever it is that he tells you to do. Okay? Sounds like pretty good advice to me. Both in context and in a broader context, right? And so, he says, she says to the servants, with whatever uh, authority she had, just do what this guy tells you to do. Now, so they found some jars in verse uh, 6. Bob, let's go. Can I go back and have you pick it up at 6 again and read down through 10?
Okay, we got to deal with this. Now, here's what happens. There are, he notices that there are six stone jars. Now, the six stone jars tell us something, okay? First of all, they tell us that this is not, they didn't get these at Pottery Barn. They didn't get these at, uh, what's the place, Garden Ridge, okay? These are not, these are not clay pots. That's what the common man used. These are stone jars. These are jars that have been hewn out of limestone, rock. What does that mean? It probably means that this family, at least somebody involved in this thing or where it's being hosted, somebody on the scene is a person of wealth. Okay, so put the word wealth in there. The presence of these jars indicates wealth. But it also indicates, since they were used for, and we're given the detail here in the passage, that they're used for what we would call ritual cleansing or washing. Okay, and by the way, you can read about that. I put a couple of references to it. Uh, they literally used so much water in the context of a meal uh, or in just a family life. You and I know that they used a lot of water to wash feet because they wore sandals and the roads were dusty, sometimes muddy, all that kind of thing. So they used a lot of this ritual water to, to cleanse feet. But they all, a lot, like Jesus did in, um, in, um, in John 13 in the upper room, but they also used a lot of this water to wash their hands. They were required to wash their hands numerous times between each course of the meal, not just before the meal and after, between each course of the meal. And it, it was an elaborate thing that was prescribed in the law where they poured water over their hands up like this until it kind of dripped down to their, and then they'd, then they'd go down and they'd pour, and so used a lot of water to wash their hands. So, so uh, one of the things this, these stone jars indicated that they were nearby is that these people were people of wealth and they were also people of religion, they were people who, um, uh, that's just the best word I could come up with here. Uh, they had, it indicates, the fact that they had so many of them, large ones, indicated that they, that they observed their, their religious responsibility uh, very strictly. Um, so, thus, they would have a, a container around that would hold up to, and it, okay, it says here, um, Kind of gives us a measure of weight. Um, so between 20 and 30 gallons means between 120 and 180 gallons of water, which means to you and me, well, let's take the, the, the middle road and say, let's say 150 gallons of water are going to be involved here. And Jesus says to them, remember Mary has said to the folks that are working, she said, do whatever he tells you to do. And so Jesus says, go fill them up with water. There's some detail there. What does he say? To the brim. Important detail. It's not, it's not a casual detail. If it's in red, it's never a casual detail. Okay? Fill it up to the rim. What does that mean? Well, it means that... Um, um, it means... Uh, by the way, it's going to take a while to fill them. A lot of water. They don't have a pump. Okay, they have a garden hose. By the way, don't drink water out of a garden hose. I, that's not what I was saying there. Okay, don't drink out of a garden hose. Uh, um, but they're going to fill them to the brim. It's going to take one commentator said it would probably take thirty minutes or more to fill these things up. They'd have to draw water, bring it. Draw water, bring it. Okay, they're not going to haul these heavy stone jars. They're going to haul water to them, fill them. So, but he fills it to the rim or to the brim. That means 
there, when the wine is made, there's no room for anything else. In other words, there's not going to be room for water to cut the wine. Or there's not going to be any sleight of hand here where, you know, they poured a little bit of wine in that happened to be left over and they dipped that back out and mixed with the water, but it looked kind of purple. You know, that, none of that's going to happen. This is, they're filled to the brim, to the brim with water. So what happens in verse 8? Just draw some out and take it to Janie Stewart. Okay. All right. Draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet, to the, to the wedding coordinator, to the guy who's in charge of this. Um, now, he's in charge. This is the first time that the, the master of the banquet appears in this story. This is going to be good. By now, he's noticed there's some hubbub going on, and they bring him... Um, a little bit of the wine. It says here, you, we got some new wine. You probably need to taste this. Didn't Tony Randall used to do this on the Tonight Show? Do you remember that? Didn't what? Do you, don't I remember that Tony Randall? They'd bring him some kind of hooch, and he he could tell exactly what it was and when it was. Uh, this was that guy. Okay, he knew what the good stuff was, and he tastes it, and he says, "Wait a minute." Where's the bridegroom? In this case, where's John? If we think that. Where's the bridegroom? What is he concerned about? Well, he's concerned here about the quality of the wine. That's what goes in the next blank. The banquet master, verse 8, needs to be served first. And he says, where, he immediately tastes it and says, where's the groom? The quality of the new wine is important. This is not Cut wine. Most of the wine that they drank in that day was cut two parts water to one part wine. Okay? Went further. All right? Alcohol content was less. This wasn't cut wine. You know what I mean here? This was the real thing, the good stuff. Completely. Many of these people may have never tasted anything like this. So he says, where's the groom? And actually, in verse 10, the, uh, Janie Stewart calls the bridegroom aside and says, what are you trying to pull here, pal? You're supposed to serve that stuff first. And then the cut stuff, we'll serve at the end when people don't really care as much anymore. He says, what Vanessa Williams later sang, you saved the best for last. <laughs> you know? Look, up, look it up, 1991. One of my favorite 90s songs. You went and saved the best for last. That's what the master says to the bridegroom. And John's scratching his head. Well, this is really a mix-up, he thinks. And there's no mix-up involved. Bob, read verse 11 and 12, and we'll close it. Mm. I read verse 11 and 12. Here we go. We're almost done. 
This is the beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. We'll stop right there. Listen. Listen. The result of this miracle was glory and faith. John's going to say at the end of his gospel, there are all kinds of miracles he did so that people would believe. But what I've got to ask you is this. Does, do miracles ensure faith? Look at chapter 12 real quickly, verse 37. The miracles, does faith automatically follow? Here's what he says. Though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing him. Okay, I just want for a minute to ask this. What if this was John? He's writing 70 years after the crucifixion and resurrection. And while he's doing so, he's looking at his wedding album. They didn't do pictures back then. I know that, okay? But he's looking at his wedding pictures. Do you think he saved any of that wine? Do you think? Was, was the wine that they served in the upper room part of this 150 gallons? Was there any left over after the resurrection that they could use in Acts 2 when it talked about the breaking of the bread and the sharing of the wine? The question is, and you can put the word salvation in the very last blank. Hebrews says that a miracle is not going to automatically mean that I come to faith. What it's going to say is that acknowledgement of God's activity, acknowledgement of that miracle is all important. It reveals the condition of my heart. Literally, acknowledgement of what God is doing in my life reveals my salvation. So, here's the question. What would you do or what do you do with the miracles in your life? The most important thing I can do when God shows up in my life is acknowledge it. You know? Now, as we leave today, I want us to think about it. I can grow in faith. I can be thankful for the miracles in my life. But I first have to acknowledge the miracles in my life. For sadly, there were many in this scene, many throughout Jesus' life and career here on the earth, who saw a miracle and came to him in faith like John did. But there were as many more who saw the miracle and just said, nah, it's not for me. So now I'm going to quote from the Gospel of Williams. Or should it be the Gospel of Vanessa. Here's the question she says. Sometimes the very thing you're looking for is the one thing you can't see. Aren't you glad that in this wedding he saved the best? for last here's my question what are you going to do with it what is it going to do to your faith alright 
Have a great Sunday.